and everything is recording wonderful all right everybody uh welcome back to another episode and today i am very honored to be joined by uh, doug brignoli uh doug welcome to the show how are you doing today thank you very much i'm doing fine thanks uh did so this is how most people are pronouncing your name but is that how it's meant to be pronounced brignoli Brignoli. It's a French name. It would be Brignol. Oh, okay. In, in French, the town of Brignol in the south of France, and then it went to Italy in the 18th century, and there it was probably Brignole. Uh huh. And then it went to Chile, which is where my parents are from, and they would say Brignole. <laughs> and then I don't know why it became Brignoli here in the U.S. because you don't say Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it would be more sensible to say Brignol, but it is what it is. <laughs> I yeah I actually assumed that you you would be Italian by origin or would have some Italian roots because like a Brignol that that sounded kind of yeah. like an Italian well, name. The, the GN is a clue that it's French, like filet mignon, rossignol. Yeah. Um, but um, if it ended in an I, it would be Italian. Uh-huh. And the way we pronounce it, Brignoli, sounds like it would end in an I, but it doesn't. Um, but my family did go to the northern part of Italy, which is now Genoa. There's a Brignoli train station in Genoa, mm. um, but it's it's it, it it didn't originate in in Italy. Okay, all right, very interesting. So um, yeah, we we will have a, a bunch of cool things to talk about today. First, a, a little bit about your background. I think you're you're getting more and more well known within the circles that I'm moving around in, which is. Uh, the evidence-based fitness uh, world, as as you might call it, um, although it's it's getting more and more fuzzy. What qualifies as evidence-based? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, and what doesn't? But um, so you're you're kind of known as as a biomechanics um, expert, an expert on on exercise selection, and um, you're you've also competed in, in bodybuilding and you were uh, Mr. America and Mr. Universe at, at mm-hmm. one point. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah. Your pictures from your bodybuilding years, like you, you built a, an incredible physique. So I want to compliment you on that. Thank um, you very much. So roughly when did this uh, interest in, in biomechanics and um, optimizing exercise selection start for you was that something present in your bodybuilding years already or um no it's it started i started uh, you know i guess you could say i'm sort of mechanically oriented J- just my personality is mechanically oriented so as soon as i started working out at the age of 14 i was already i didn't know the names of these things i didn't know there was an actual subject called biomechanics nor did i know at 14 what physics was but I, but I knew that some things felt right and some things didn't. So, for example, when I was doing the upright row, I was saying, my, there's no way my wrists are supposed to bend sideways like this. And, and I know where a tricep extension ends and I know where a curl ends, but I, and, I, and I know what defines it. But I don't know what defines the end of an upright row. Mm-hmm. And when I do parallel bar dips, it says it's for triceps and pecs. But I'm feeling it in my front deltoids. I'm not feeling it in my triceps and my pecs. So I was, from the very beginning, analyzing these things. And, and, and maybe the first leap that where I really started experimenting with what would be considered resistance curves, without even knowing that word existed, was, or that term existed, um, is when I was doing seated 
um, barbell wrist curls with my forearms on my thighs. And I sensed that it was heavier than I wanted it to be at the bottom and lighter than I wanted it to be at the top. And I instinctively knew that if I jump up, if I prop up the back end of that bench and tilt my forearms downward so that my forearms were not parallel, but were at a decline that I could decrease the resistance at the bottom and increase it at the top. And that felt better. So little things like that at 14, 15 years old, but I've, I've been, you know, I was the guy building the dog house in the backyard and fixing the doorknobs. I was, as a kid, I was mechanically inclined. And even now, if something falls over, the first place my mind goes is like, you know, what were the physics of that? How did mm. the weight shift? Yeah, that is really cool. And um, maybe one thing we can we can chat a bit about in the beginning is um, I, I find it very interesting. I, I made a video recently on, on exercise selection and didn't go into it as in as much detail as, as you tend to do it. But um, one thing I find interesting is that a lot of people in the bodybuilding world are very, very hardcore into the whole fitness lifestyle. They make a lot of sacrifices in many areas to be able mm -hmm. to train, I don't know, twice a day and to have their nutrition set up in a particular way. And it's very time intensive, effort intensive. And I actually always find it kind of amazing that if I'm just looking at people's, I don't know, Instagram videos, how their workouts are looking like, it looks like a lot of people actually don't invest a lot of time into being very meticulous about exercise selection. That is kind of just a big fascination of mine. Like, how is it possible? I mean, really, if you're after building the most amount of muscle possible, then surely the exercises that you're doing to build those muscles is a pretty important consideration. I, I'm guessing this was something that you noticed quite uh, early on in into your bodybuilding years already. Right. Well, I would say, um, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but it is true that the, the bodybuilding community as a whole tends to be very dogmatic and very muscle head oriented. And by muscle head, what I mean by that is they follow the followers. They follow the people that came before them. Um, one of the things that I've always found fascinating is if you ask the average bodybuilder um, to name the muscles of the upper back, like I'll say, like when you're doing a rowing exercise, presumably you're doing it for the upper back. Can you name those muscles? And better yet, can you name their functions? Right. And it, which would mean you'd know where they originate and where they insert. Right. That would, that would tell you what the, what the, the function is. And most of them don't know the names and they throw out like rhomboids. They almost <laughs> always throw out rhomboids. Because I think it sounds technical um, and, and yet it doesn't matter where the rhomboids is because the rhomboids lie underneath the trapezius. If you work the trapezius, you work the rhomboids by default. So the idea that you would name the muscle that you can't see instead of naming the muscle that you can see just shows that they really don't know whether the rowing exercises they're doing is actually targeting the muscles that they want to target. And in fact, rowing does not. Yeah. I mean, if we're actually talking about the back, I, I think a lot of people wouldn't even say that rows are for the upper back. I think they would just say rows are for the back. The back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's actually, um, it's kind of the equivalent of saying that, um, okay, so what, what exercises are you doing for the, for, for the front? And then that would encompass everything like the abs, the chest, the <laughs> front delts and everything. And we intuitively know that that's, that's not like, that's silly. 
but yeah. with the back, it's uh, people just tend to think about it as as one one muscle yeah. group. I'm working uh, the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, actually, uh, just just to backtrack for one second, I I just went on to your um, or I just saw a story of yours on Instagram popping up, and uh, I saw that you were making some notes for a video that Mike Isratel made uh, about right. your your uh-huh. program not that long ago. So um, I, I saw that video of his. Uh, what what were your thoughts on it? Well, you know, basically, it's amazing, frankly, that he would dare to do a video without even knowing what's in the book. I mean, he, he literally criticized things that are spelled out in the book. I mean, I'm, for the most part, I mean, I'm going to show screenshots. In my book, I say this. You assumed I didn't say that. You assumed I said something else. So it just amazes me that people don't actually know what I say, don't actually know what's in the book, don't actually know what I teach. Like he said something like, you know, you can't make, you can't evaluate an exercise with biomechanical calculation. There is no such thing as a biomechanical calculation. There is a thing as a physics calculation and physics is a component of bio, biomechanics. But biomechanics is biology and mechanics. So it is true that, you know, you could look at an exercise like a flat dumbbell press is the example he uses and dismiss it as he says that I do, which I don't. It's in the book as one of the better exercises. He says you would dismiss it because the mechanics is such that the resistance diminishes toward the end. Well, that's consistent with the strength curve of the muscle. That's exactly what we say because, because and he's, he, he says that a lot of people use biomechanics as kind of like a, you know, a, a, like a marketing term. It's like, Okay, well, first of all, no, <laughs> that's not true. I mean, it is true that a lot of people do that. It's not true that yeah. I do that. And, you know, I, I have 16 biomechanical factors that determine the value, the productivity, the efficiency, the energy efficiency, and the safety of an exercise. And they can't all be calculatable. They're not all math. They're not all physics. So just for him to say something that suggests that he thinks that I, I, all I do is talk math just shows he doesn't know what I'm, what I actually teach. Yeah. I mean, um, so just for the record, I, I really do like uh, Mike Isretel both as, as a fitness authority and also as, as a person, I think he's a great guy, but um, I will say that me as someone, I, I read your book. Uh, I, I, so I didn't read it like cover to cover cause it's, it's fairly dense. Uh, so I, actually quite frequently just open it up and revisit chapters and uh, go forward like okay so what what did we or what did Doug say about like training that muscle group so I can tell pretty quickly if someone who is reviewing your your material has actually read the book or not or or at least consumed a lot of your podcasts or something like that and um, yeah unfortunately so Mike when I started watching his video I could tell pretty early on that he kind of went through maybe a, a couple of um, maybe clips of you saying certain things or maybe a couple of articles that you, you published and skimmed it through. But um, yeah, he started talking about the, the, the problematic aspects of EMG research, which you never really talk about. So it's like, yeah, I mean, that, that's true, but you never really reference EMG research much or that, that's not the main selling point behind your exercise selection ideas. And then uh, how a leg extension 
could be considered better than a squat because because you're also um, targeting the the muscle in, in the shortened position which is true but it's it's not again it's not one of the main points that you're making so there were a couple of things like this where i was like yeah okay so like this is not really addressing the main things that you're addressing the biomechanical calculation thing uh was was maybe an interesting phrasing but but at least that was something that was sort of reacting specifically to the things that you're saying about like right. levers and um efficiency well here's here's the thing is that you know mike as i understand that is an exercise physiologist and the endorser one of my endorsers of the book and the guy who wrote the forward to my book is dr wayne westcott who's an exercise physiologist and I have him on, on videotape saying that exercise physiology is largely absent biomechanics. That, you know, they, they mostly study the science of what happens in the muscle. They mostly study what happens, um, let's say, uh, high reps versus low reps, um, uh, frequency of workouts, um, length of rest time between sets, how that affects uh, hypertrophy, going to failure um, or not. Um, these are all, you know, physiological things, but they don't address things that have to do with mechanics. So, for example, you know, Mike Isratel is, is seen in one of his videos doing a bent over barbell row with a cambered bar a bar that basically allows him to bring the bar up higher mm -hmm. now. And he claims that he really loves bent over barbell rows. Okay. Well, from an anatomical standpoint, the lats do not pull the elbows to the back of the room. The lats pull the uh, arms toward the spine, right? So if you're going yeah. backward, you're not, in fact, if the lats were contracting when you're pulling behind you, you would not be able to get your elbows behind you. They would be literally pulling the arm into the side of the body, right? If they're still pulling from the spine as they, as they only can, they have to actually release that to let the arm go past, mm -hmm. right? So it's so a row, a bent over row is not a good lat exercise because it's not moving the insertion toward the origin. And it's also not a great middle trapezius exercise. And the middle trapezius, by the way, is the largest muscle of the upper back. It is the most significant muscle of the upper back. The other muscles, the teres major, is a small triangular thing at the top of the lat. It works whenever the lat works. The infraspinatus, which is kind of a circular thing, is a rotator. It's not a rower at all. Um, the teres minor is not a rower at all. It's a rotator. So when you're talking about working the upper back, you're really talking about the middle trapezius. And the middle trapezius don't even connect to the arms. They go from the spine to the outer edge of the scapula and they retract the scapula, right? So yes, you can incidentally pull the shoulders back as you're rowing, but most rowing is 80% arms, 20% scapula, right? So um, the idea that you're going to pull the arms farther back in order to get to a muscle that isn't even connected to the arms at all doesn't make a lot of sense. You're basically saying I'm doing this as an, in, as an in, indirect way instead of working the middle trapezius directly. It's, it's literally more of a rear deltoid exercise. The farther you pull your elbows back, the more the rear deltoid gets involved, not to mention the fact that the lower back is actually more loaded than any of the, uh, any of the muscles that are pulling on the arms. 
because the lower back is sustaining not only the weight that's in your arms, but also the weight of your torso and the magnification of the weight that's in your arms due to the length of your torso. Yes, he's got an education and yes, he's articulate. Um, uh, but he doesn't understand body mechanics. He doesn't understand the anatomy. If, if you're still doing incline presses, then you still don't recognize the fact that the, the pectoral muscles cannot pull the arms above the shoulder line, not as well as they would pulling it to the sternum, right? So your arms are attached to your pectorals at the very top of the pectorals. 100% of your pectorals are below the shoulder line. So going straight forward already gets to the top of the pectorals and then you get to the lower part of the pectoral fibers, but going in the upper direction moves your arms towards your neck or your chin and there's no pectoral fibers there. So these, this is just an example of how you can have an exercise physiologist who is not taught that moving the arms in an inclined direction um, does not move them towards any pectoral origin, not directly towards any pectoral origins, but they know what the pectoral muscles would be doing when they're contracting. So sometimes they do an EMG analysis, and which of course is very limited in, in what it tells you. It doesn't tell you whether it's isometric or dynamic, doesn't tell you whether it's early phase loaded, doesn't tell you a lot of things. But the one thing it does, it, you know, it a lot of times it just tells you what is predictable, right? If you, if you see less activity on an EMG analysis on the highest sternal pectoral fibers when doing an incline press, I would say, why did you bother with an EMG study to tell you that it's obvious you're not moving your arms toward those fibers? You could predict that just by knowing some basic anatomy and mechanics. Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about the, the, the incline pressing, decline pressing, because that, that's definitely a very interesting point. Um, when it comes to the back, uh, what, what I actually wanted to say is, is it always amazes me how, so if I'm asking the average bodybuilder, like, okay, what are great exercises for the lats? Most of them will say, well, I mean, you, you got to do some, some vertical and some horizontal pulling, maybe in like a one-to-one -one ratio. So rows and, and lat pull downs, like, like that's what they will often say. And so like, I think anybody who is understanding biomechanics, like, like somewhat like basic functions of muscle, like they, they kind of see like, okay, what, what, what is the main function of the lats? What is maybe like secondary function of the lats? They will be able to put together that, okay, like, yeah, a row is going to work it somewhat because there is like some shoulder extension going on there, but, but it's partial range of motion at best, not great, not ideal, but I'm actually, so if I'm looking at most bodybuilders, some of, some of the best backs that I have seen, it's, it's actually quite incredible. I know that genetics matter a ton, but it's still quite incredible to me how they could develop such incredible backs because it's not like, so in the case of the back squat, okay, we can argue, okay, like how, how suboptimal is a back squat compared to something that is, you know, more biomechanically optimized to target the quads. But when I'm looking at their exercise selection for the, for the lats and, and, and the back in general, I mean, it's not nowhere near optimal. So, um, uh, to be honest, when I see that, sometimes I'm not sure what to conclude. Is the conclusion that maybe what seems to be optimal on paper just doesn't work out like that in practice because of maybe some unknown reasons that we just don't quite understand? Does it mean that the actual volume of work that you need to do for a muscle is much lower than we suspect? So even those few more optimized exercises like the lat pulldowns that they do is enough to grow all the lats that they need? Or, or, or something else. Um, 
I mean, I'm sure you have have thought about that yourself. Sure. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lat pull down is actually better than a chin up, in part because you can angle your torso back, which means that the resistance is now coming from slightly in front of you, right? Which on mm -hmm. a chin up you can't. It's coming from directly overhead, right? So yeah. you're better off coming from this angle. That's number one. Um, but just in general, when you're talking about rowing and T-bar rows and bent over barbell rows and chin-ups and all, all the things that people do in a back exercise, in a back workout, you could actually assign them what would be considered kind of a ballpark evaluation from one to 10, with 10 being best. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, like a lat, one-arm cable lat pull-in pull like this would be a 10. If you take the next best exercise, let's say a lat pull down, okay, that's probably an eight, eight and a half. Okay, then you take the next one, which would be, let's say, uh, um, you know, a, a chest supported machine row. Okay, that might be for the lat, that might be like a four or a five. Um, and so you, you get all these fours, fives, sixes, nines. And, and if you do enough of them, you end up with enough muscle load. Whereas if you did fewer of them and they were tens, you'd end up the same thing. So the way I usually explain it is I say, look, if you arrive at a destination, it would be a mistake to assume that the road you took was the best road to take. Even though it was rocky, it was muddy, it was bumpy, you, you beat up your vehicle, you, you wasted a lot of gas, your tires were spinning, you know, and by the time you got there, you had injuries, you had wasted more energy than you needed to, but you got there. And so now you're going to make the assumption that there is no better road, right? So when someone says the fact that, you know, these traditional exercises have produced a result, that's evidence that, quote unquote, it works. Yes, it's evidence that it works. It is not evidence that there is no better way. Mm-hmm. Right. There is yeah. a better way. And, and all you have to do is just look at it logically. What does that muscle do best? It pulls towards its origin. Now, what's the best way to, 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 to create muscle stimulation? Early phase loading, which means that, let's say, if you're doing a one arm pull in, when you're in the up position and that cable is pulling in that same diagonal, that means you're neutral. Right. At the beginning of the movement and you have a mechanical disadvantage that's happening because the lat is pulling almost parallel to the, the humerus at that moment, right? So you've got an, a magnification happening here, but you've got a neutral resistance because of the direction of the resistance. And as you start to increase your mechanical advantage here, you're increasing your percentage of resistance. So that works very much like a standing curl. So these things give you better muscle stimulation and safer joint movement. And the result is you get more with less. Now, if you want to do more because, you know, you have evidence that people who have done more got where you want to get, then do more. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying if you want to be smart and you want to beat yourself up less and, and waste less effort, then you would say, well, then what are the six within in my book? I talk about the 16 factors. What are the 16 factors that determine efficacy? energy efficiency and safety. And if an exercise meets all of those factors, then it's optimal. It, get, it gets a rating of 10. And if it doesn't meet all of those, it might rate a seven or a two or a five or something like that, and, and it, which is better than nothing, but it's not as good as a 10. Yeah. Um, 
So first of all, I, I just want to say, um, so at, at various parts of this talk, I will try to kind of challenge you on a few things. Um, Please, yeah. yeah, so I, I, I don't do everything in the way that you lay out in the book, um, main, mainly, and, and I will be curious to see what you make of it. Uh, some of it might simply be because I, I just don't understand uh, certain things enough. Uh, maybe I'm too stubborn. Um, my main reasoning for those things is, is practicalities. So not, not so much uh, because I disagree on a, on a theoretical basis, but um, simply because of practical issues that you just run into with people in, in the weight room. With that out of the way, um, going back to the back, so, or the lats more specifically. So um, I, I know that you have the lat pull in as your, your kind of number one meat and potatoes exercise. What do you think about the idea of muscles having sort of multiple functions? So in the case of the lats, there is shoulder extension, but then there is also shoulder adduction. So what would be your thoughts on having maybe two exercises like the lat pull-in, but one that is more so biasing the shoulder extension movement and then another one, which is like pulling the arms in more so from the side. Um, what do you think about that? Well, one of the 16 factors is a principle that's called opposite position loading. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you read the chapter opposite position loading basically means that whatever muscle is positioned directly opposite the direction of resistance will be the most loaded where that, whether that's your intention or not. And in my book on what I, what I start off with is I, I say, imagine that the leaning tower of Pisa is over there and it's falling North and today's the day it's going to fall and it's going to fall North. And here's a rope that's strong enough to hold it. You're strong enough to do the work. You're going to attach this rope to that tower. On which side of the tower would you stand on to be most effective? Logically, you'd stand on the south side of the tower. If you stood on the east side or the west side of the tower, you'd be largely ineffective because that's not where the load is, right? The load is on the south side, and it's greater at the base than at the top mm. of the south side. So that means that when you're trying to, to direct the force, the more that you angle towards the front on a lat pull-in, the more that you move slightly away from the muscle origins of the lat and more toward the muscle origins of the rear deltoid. Hmm. In fact, if you kept going over, now you'd be 100% rear deltoid and no lats. If you go like this, that's rear deltoid, no lats. Some lats, some rear deltoid, very little rear deltoid, all lats. So because it's opposite the origin of, of the latissimus fibers on the spine. So let's just say that you were, um, and you were able to be a muscle and you were able to be any muscle you wanted to be. And your job was to be whatever muscle this particular person doing this exercise needs, right? And this person's going to do this pull in from the front like this, right? And so you could decide to be a lat fiber or you could decide to be a rear deltoid fiber. But you know, this arm is going, let's say you're facing north, you know, it's going to go south, right? You're going to stand on the south side to be most, you're not going to get over around the corner yeah. to be most effective to go around the torso. You're not going to be doing this if you want to pull in this direction. You're trying to get this movement. You're going to be like I show in the book. You're going to be like those little marionette dolls. Mm. You're going to pull the string like a marionette doll. You're going to pull on the muscle in the direction of its path. You're not going to go around. So the rear deltoid is a smaller muscle than the lat. It's a weaker muscle than the lat. And it's more in a position to be effective. 
than it is the lat when the resistance is coming from the front. So will you get some lats by doing that? Sure. Less lat than you would by doing this and also more rear deltoid than you would by doing this. So there's a, there's a crossover, right? So the, one of the things I say in my book is, is that the, there is one very, very precise direction of movement that most mimics what that muscle does. And you can move it a little bit, a little more, a little more. And the more that you move it, the less participation from that target muscle you'll get and the more you'll get from other muscles. And eventually you'll move so far that the target muscle can't do most of the work because it's not in the pathway. Yeah. Um, so on that, what, what do you think about the, um, the counter argument to that, which, which would say that, um, and actually, so this was, I saw the, the back and forth that you had with Joffrey uh, Verdi Schofield. One of his, um, in the second video that he, he addressed you, one thing that he said, um, which I think was, was an interesting point, is that, you know, muscles, like sure, there might be one primary best way, maybe on paper, to stimulate that muscles. But, but at the same time, like most muscles will have many, many fibers kind of running, sometimes in actually somewhat different directions. So even if, so let's say, for example, if we look at a lateral raise, like that, that's going to be mainly side delts, but at the same time, it might actually also stimulate the, maybe like the frontal fibers of the rear delts or, and, and vice versa, or maybe in the case of like an overhead press, like we can make an argument that that's not a great side delt exercise, but maybe like more so like the the anterior fibers of the side delts, it's going to hit like the, the, the middle fibers, not so much. So in the case of something like um, a more narrow kind of pull in type movement, maybe it's going to stimulate like a slightly different area of the lats than, than a pull in from more so from the side. Right. Well, it is true that you, when you're doing an exercise like a side lateral or any exercise, there's always something else working. Right. It's not just the lateral delta that's going to work. It, frankly, when you're doing a side delta, you're going to get some more, you're going to get more participation from the front delta than you would from the, from the rear delta. Um, but, but the point is, yeah, you, you do get some peripheral recruitment. Um, as I said, you know, you're going to get like, if you do this, it's going to be pretty much all like 90% rear deltoid. Now you're going to get about like, I would say probably 70, maybe 60% rear deltoid and 40% lats. Then you, you come farther over to the side. Now you're getting 80, 90% lats and 10%, 15% rear deltoid. So yes, there's always a blending, but but here's the thing is when you're talking about fibers that pull in a different direction. So let's just talk about upper lat fibers and lower lat fibers. Mm -hmm. You know, those muscles are on a diagonal, right? So they start, you know, in the, in the, they're, they're in the bottom two thirds of the spine and in the back of the pelvis and all those fibers go up and they converge onto the humerus. So somebody will say, you know, that if you're doing a rowing exercise, that's the only way to get the upper lat fibers because they're parallel with, with the pulling. Well, it is true that when you do a rowing exercise, you're going to work more upper lat fibers than you were, than you will lower lat fibers. That, that makes sense. And I'll talk about the alternative in just a second. But the, the fact is when you're doing a pull in, right. Again, going back to this thing I told you before, if you could be a roaming muscle fiber, right? And you would go wherever you needed to go, wherever your assistance was needed. 
and you were in the upper position here, you're going to be more effective as a lower lat fiber. So you would have to come down the spine and you would, you wouldn't be so effective if you were one of the upper lat fibers when the arm is, is in that high position. So the rule is whatever muscle is more perpendicular to the limb is the one that has a greater responsibility just logically. Right? So in the beginning, the lower lat fibers are going to work more. And then as you get farther and farther down the movement, now the upper lat fibers can do more pulling because they're more perpendicular to the humerus and the lower lat fibers can't do as much because they're not perpendicular to the humerus. Mm -hmm. So all of them work sequentially. They don't all work at the same time. They all work with their turn, lower lat beginning, middle lat, and then high lats. So they all work through the range of motion, whichever muscle fiber gets more perpendicular with that limb at the time. Now, the alternative that I was talking about is I always tell people that uh, opposite position loading tells us that if we want to target the middle trapezius, which originates on the spine and goes out to the outer edge of the scapula, then you, what you want to do is have the resistance from the left side coming at about a 45 degree angle that way and a 45 degree angle that way, and then emphasize the scapular part of that movement, right? Now, I'm not saying only, so I am pulling my elbows in, right? So as I do that, that's my upper lat fibers contracting. That's pulling my, it's not my trapezius that's pulling my arms because they're not connected to my arms. And so my arms are coming in and they're coming in because mostly, not exclusively, but mostly because of the upper lat fibers. Yes, the lower lat fibers also participate. They're not out of the picture, but they're not perpendicular to it so much as the upper lat fibers. So the mistake comes when you pull the elbows back here and as I said earlier, if you took a rope and you put it around this wall and you're going to drag something, as soon as that object gets right to the edge of that wall, that's all I can do. If that object is going to keep going past the wall, I can't be the one doing it because now it's moving away from me. I have to actually let go and allow the, another muscle, which is the rear deltoids, to do the rest of the pulling. Otherwise, if I keep pulling as hard as I was before, that thing won't have, won't be able to go past. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, yeah. I mean, that, that is actually one of those fairly basic biomechanical principles. Like once your elbows are behind your body, like the lats, like the, literally don't do anything. Like, um, it, it might, might be an argument. So if someone is doing a lat pull down to do that little bit of an extra range of motion, because like, if you can train, two muscles at the same time more effectively than I, I guess, why not just from maybe a time efficiency standpoint, but, um, but otherwise well, time efficient time efficiency, if you don't mind a little bit of a compromise on each muscle in terms of the quality of the stimulation. Yeah. But I did see this one guy put a, a post, an Instagram post up recently. And he was, he was saying, instead of doing your lat pull downs like this, you should do them like this. Well, the funny thing about that is, and, and he says, you know, people are doing this for Instagram attention. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, if you do, a, uh, if you take a lap pull down bar and you pull one arm at a time, you can actually get your arm farther down. You can yeah. actually contract a lot more. If you try to do this, you can't get your arms to your sides. Right. So not to mention the fact that, that you can actually lean your whole shoulder into it which is coming closer to a one-arm pull-in with a cable. 
So it is it is a better thing. But this is a, an example of a guy who, who sees something that is mechanically better and doesn't understand it enough and thinks that it's actually just some gimmick that now the people who he sees doing that might not understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. So you might be right in the sense that they're just trying to get Instagram attention. But the fact is doing it two arm at a time is not better than doing it one arm at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely been leaning a lot more towards unilateral exercises. Um, uh, one, one thing actually I wanted to ask about the lat pull in, um, and, and you do write about it in your book, but, um, I guess I just didn't, didn't understand it fully. So why do you, so basically the lat pull in the way you're executing it is you start out, you start out like, like this, and then you, you're kind of like pulling in, you're like kind of crunching into the movement to the side a little bit. Um, why that way and why not like actually leaning towards it to get like i guess like a slightly bigger stretch i know you don't want to be shrugging your arms all the way up to your ears but like maybe stretching out the lats a bit more and then actually leaning away from it as you're pulling it up so that actually the resistance is is still high at this point um yeah can you can you just if i wanted to get more stretch i would just raise the 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 lever arm i just raise the pulley uh, yeah. The, the, the reason I've set that pulley at about a 30 degree angle is because I don't want my arm to go higher. Now, you might say, well, don't you want as much stretch as you can get? And mm. I would say, well, you want enough stretch, right? You don't need maximum stretch. When we talk about full range of motion, we don't necessarily mean 100% range of motion, right? If you're doing leg extension, you don't need your calves to touch your butt. But you wouldn't it be better, though? Your, um, no, I actually think that that it would be at best as good, but not necessarily better. And I think what ends up happening is you end up um, you end up asking yourself, what's better, more range of motion with less weight or slightly less range of motion with more weight? And I think there's like a happy medium. I think there is such a thing. As, as getting so much range of motion that you have to compromise how much weight you use too much. Now, when you're talking about knee extension, there's another factor, and that is that the quadricep tendon is going over the knee and connecting to that lower leg shin in front, right? Which means that when your knee is at a 90-degree angle, it has a certain amount of mechanical disadvantage. But when it's all the way around the corner, what's actually happening is that tendon actually has to pull forward first before it can pull back towards the origin right mm. so now you're talking about pulling that tibia slightly away from the end of the femur so i think there there might be some 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 knee risk there i mean if you're pulling at a 90 degree angle or maybe just past nine at least you're pulling to the head of the end of the humerus the distal end but if it's all the way bent, now you're really creating, I think, more knee strain. And, and the question would then become, that's great if the weight is relatively light, but if the weight is relatively heavy, how much, how much um, weight would I have to use to get maximum muscle benefit before encountering some knee discomfort? Like, right. let's, just, let's just say you could do a sissy squat um, all the way to the bottom till your knee can't bend anymore. And you've added a ton of weight to it. I think that's asking for a knee injury. Whereas I have no problem doing a sissy squad with added weight. If I stop at about, you know, hundred degrees range of motion, 
100 mm. degree bend in my knee just past 90 degrees. So, um, but anyway, getting back to the lat exercise. So, so this is as high as I want to go. Now, there is, there is the issue of the shoulder, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, one of, the, one of the 16 factors is making sure that we are working within joint limitations. So you don't really want to go much higher than this. Um, and depending on if you've had a shoulder injury, you might discover that if you've had no shoulder injuries, you might find that going a little bit higher is perfectly comfortable. If you've had a shoulder injury, you might find that bring, bringing down that pulley a little bit actually makes it feel much more comfortable and much more effective for you. So let's just say you, you got about a 30 degree angle. You're relatively sideways, not completely sideways. So you're getting the most amount of pulling away of the scapula and, and pulling that part of the lat out. Then what happens if you stay sideways and you pull in while staying sideways, what you'll discover is that you have a certain amount of external shoulder rotation because you're, you're too sideways. So angling yourself toward it a little bit at that point protects the shoulder. Now you can experiment with this and I tell people to experiment with it. Okay. So start doing this and then find the amount of torso rotation toward the pulley that you need to do in order to find that contraction and at the same time feel that the shoulder isn't being turned out too far and everyone has a different place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard you mention that before um, a couple of times that you would have too much external rotation, but is that a problem because it tends to jam people's shoulders up in your experience? Well, biomechanically can, as well, I, I can feel it myself. If I don't turn toward it, I definitely feel like this is, straining my shoulder maybe not to the point of injury but straining it unnecessarily mm -hmm. right if i turn toward it a little bit i not only get relief in the shoulder but i also get more contraction in the lat i can actually pull the arm down lower all right now in terms of um you know whether or not you need to lean toward it or not i i would i would recommend not leaning in terms of bending your spine in that direction but I do recommend bringing the shoulder down higher, lower than this shoulder. So you can get a certain amount of lat contraction just by pulling the lat down. Mm. And it doesn't take far, doesn't take much shoulder to do that. Um, and so that's, so you're turning toward it a little bit and you're also dropping the shoulder down a little bit. It's not an actual leaning, not so much that you're actually feeling your obliques contract. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so one thing that, um, and, and by the way, I appreciate that you 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 do this regularly, kind of talking about genetics when it comes to muscle shape, muscle insertion, attachment points, these things. So, when it comes to having that very aesthetic uh, lats look from the back, where it almost looks like the person has like a a butt cheek on their backs. Yeah. Um, is that basically just uh, just genetics? Like some people are just built that way and some people just, just won't have that like big, I guess a lot of people would think that that's like lower back muscles, but that's actually like the lower uh, part of the lats. So is, is that just how some people are built and other people just will never have that no matter what they do or? Well, yeah, what you're, what you're talking about is what sometimes we call it the Christmas tree, mm -hmm. right? You're talking about that, that, that line where the lats meet the the connective tissue yeah. that then connect to the spine the lats as as fibers don't connect they connect as 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 uh, as ligaments right so you have the connective tissue so that's a genetic thing and obviously your your ability to see it for it to be visible has to do with your ability to get lean enough yeah so you might you might 
everyone has an end to their lat fibers where the connective tissues start. Not everyone can see it because they're not lean enough to see it. Now, in my book, I, I talk about that and I, and I distinguish that from the lower back. And mm. I, some people will say, we'll see the Christmas tree and they go, oh, he's got a great lower back. And I'll go, well, no, what you're seeing is where the lats end in the connective tissue begins. But if you're talking about lower back, there is no lower back muscle, right? It, what we have instead, it's just like there is no lower ab muscle. What we have is you're seeing the, 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 the part of the lower back that is basically behind the lats connective tissue. And that would be the erector spinae to the degree that the erector spinae actually go down that far because they also have connective tissue. So if you, if you were to Google erector spinae and you look at the anatomy charts, you will see that most of us have, well, all of us have connective tissue that goes up, you know, three, four, five inches before the erector spinae actually start. And the question is, when the erector spinae actually start, they've already gone behind underneath the lats. So you can't actually see them. Now, some people might say, well, but if the erector spinae are really big, then they'll push the lats forward and you'll have a deeper back. That's true. That is true. The question is, do the erector spinae have as much capacity for thickening as do the pecs or the lats or the quads no they don't right they're they're basically ropes they're, they're like sheaths very similar to the rectus abdominis so the yeah. rectus abdominis is, is basically a sheath of muscle right it doesn't have the kind of growth capacity that a bicep or a tricep does so you're not going to get a lot of thickening so the idea of spending uh, in fact, one of the uh, a lot of effort on erector spinae may be questionable. Uh, in my book, I have three pictures of pro bodybuilders and three pictures of amateur bodybuilders. And of course, you can tell who the pros are in terms of their body mass and who the amateurs are in terms of their body mass. And I say, but now let's look at all of their lower backs. And what you realize is that almost all the lower backs look pretty much the same. Mm hmm. Yeah. They don't look too different. And, and, and the reason for that is because, again, we're talking mostly about connective tissue that can't. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a power lifter before he was a bodybuilder. And I have pictures of him, you know, deadlifting 600 pounds, 700 pounds. You know, he, you'd think he'd have massive erector spiny and his erector spiny weren't any thicker than the amateur bodybuilders. No. So it's not it's not going to give you the result you want. And if you're going to invest a lot of time effort and risk of injury in doing heavy deadlifts with the thought that you're going to de develop big, thick erector spinae, you should be aware that most of the erector spinae can't even be seen because it's behind the lats and it doesn't have much capacity to grow even, even underneath the lats. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about like programming and things like that, but, um, but, but that's, that's something that I, I haven't heard you uh, talking about that much, but, um, do, do you have, so the erector spinae, I think is a good example of something that just because the capacity for growth is just, uh, is just so, so limited compared to other muscles. Maybe it's just not worth spending a, a whole bunch of time exercising it directly. Um, do you well, have, I, I, I do recommend uh, dynamic erector yeah. spinae work where you're actually moving the spine as opposed to doing isometric work. I, you probably read the part where I say, you know, it's sort of ridiculous when we think about that when we work out in the gym, we 
isometrically work the erector spine, they're doing a lot of other exercises. And then when we get to lower back day, we do more isometric work. Yeah. Deadlifts, hyperextensions, whatever. Instead of doing, you know, dynamic work, which we all know is more productive than isometric. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, so like, would you have a suggestion on maybe like how many, so I don't know if you're going to do, I don't know, 10 sets for the chest, then for something like the erectors, you might only do, I don't know, five, just because the, the growth potential yeah. is more limited. So like, would you have some rules of thumb like that? Well, I, 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 you know, I'll go through all of them, but there's no such thing as saying that you do half as many of this. If you do twice as many, I wouldn't say that, but but it is true that, you know, when someone says how many sets of how many reps for every muscle group, it isn't a one size fits all, right? They're all sure. different. So when I do my chest, I do 10 to 12 sets. When I do my middle trapezius, I usually do six to eight sets, lats, mm. eight to 10 sets, side deltoids, 12 ish sets, front rear deltoids, six to eight sets, bicep triceps, eight to 10 sets, erector spine, four to six sets. Abs, four to six sets, uh, mm. obliques, four sets of side bends, four sets of torso rotations, um, quads, uh, anywhere between eight and 12 sets, hamstrings, six sets, glutes, six to eight sets, um, calves, 10 sets, eight to 10 sets. Yeah, I'll be, actually uh, do pretty similar um, like vo volumes that, that I tend to do as far as set numbers then. So when it, when it comes to overlap, so obviously your, like one of the main premises of, of your work is that you don't want to be doing inefficient movements for, for something. So erector spine, like instead of just like, okay, I'm going to do bent over rows because that's going to work the, the erectors isometrically. Actually, let's do something that is working them in a more optimal way. But when it comes to something like the front delts, for example, like it, it, that is actually one muscle group that is like so hard to not include fairly heavily if you're doing any chest work, basically. Um, I mean, even if you're going to do let, side delt work is, is going to be pretty hard. Like by leaning forward or doing certain things, you can exclude them a bit more, I guess. But um, so do you think that they're like, do you do you do direct front delt work yourself? I know you have the exercises listed oh, in your I book. I definitely do. In fact, I, what I was going to say is I, I, I need to do front deltoid work because I don't feel my front deltoids very much when I do pecs. Mm, okay. Now, someone else could tell me I really feel it when I do pecs and my front deltoids are huge. And I would say, OK, well, then you don't need to do direct front deltoid work <laughs> mm. because you're built in such a way for whatever reason that your front deltoid plays a bigger role than most people. Right. And why work a muscle that's already not only big enough, but might get too big to for the, for the symmetry. Right, right. Um, OK, so. Um... So you mentioned earlier the the pecs and the incline decline that that whole consideration. So as far as like direct research on that goes, it, it's actually fairly supportive of what you're saying. So even if people are are skeptical, most research that is looking at EMG studies or or, or any other indicator that would suggest how much a, one area of the muscle is working compared to another most of them tend to support that the the angle of the press doesn't seem to matter that much and there is some research that would actually show that decline work is better even for the upper pecs than incline work there is one study i think uh, that that actually did show that some sort of incline version 
targeted the clavicular had more than the flat or the decline, but that's one out of quite a few. Um, so, so would you say that incline pressing and, and let's exclude those like more, I guess, more unanimously, we can all agree that they are suboptimal when your arms are like really up high and you're pretty much like doing it in the clavicular plane and higher. So if we exclude those and we are looking at something where you're starting from lower, maybe your arms are ending at shoulder height ish, would you say that that has, um, no place if you're going to do something like an incline, uh, a decline press or a flat press, that that's completely redundant? Well, um, again, all muscles pull toward their origin, right? So um, if you wanted to take cables that are at a 45 degree angle and you want to go up yeah. toward the origin of the, cl the clavicular fibers, that's wise. That's a good strategy. Mm -hmm. I would I would say to you that if you do that, pay attention to the probability that you might actually be feeling it more in your front deltoids in your clavicular pecs um, because the clavicular pecs um, may not have as much, the, the, the front deltoids may not have as much strength as the clavicular pecs. They might be the weaker muscle, the weaker link in the chain. But what I say is, look, when I work my front, delt, my, my, my front deltoids, I get on a, on a decline bench and I do that front press. And I'm pulling, I'm pushing my humerus, the insertion of the front deltoids toward the, cl the clavicle, which is where the uh, front deltoid origins are situated, right next to it are the clavicular pectorals. So you're going to get, by default, some clavicular pectoral involvement when you're doing front deltoids. Mm -hmm. So you could be doing a set of decline dumbbells like this, and the lower you bring your elbows, the more you work the front deltoid in the clavicular pecs, whether you want it to be the case or not. When you go like this, not so much clavicular, not as much as before, but still you're getting some clavicular. And the reason for that is because you'll notice that when someone does move their arms, their clavicles angle. They don't stay like this. You know, when we're standing, I guess they're like this. When you go like this, your clavicles go like this and they actually face the oncoming humerus. I have a, a picture in my book of a woman who's very, very lean. She's doing a flat dumbbell press. And you can see that her clavicular pectoral muscles are working more than the highest sternal fibers are working. So mm. you're going to get clavicular pectoral muscles when you're doing declines for sure. In fact, I've got some people that have shown, sent me their pictures and they have amazing pecs. And all they're doing now is declines, including uppers. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, so I don't know how much credence you're putting into like how, how something feels, but actually, so I, I actually advised this to some people just, just for fun, try it out. So if you're just tapping your packs or palpating your packs and you're bringing your arms in from the side and you do it in, in different angles, so I can feel my upper packs. Yeah. I can feel it if I'm doing an incline movement, but actually I can feel it a lot more. It's, it's protruding a lot more if I'm doing a decline angle it's, it's yeah. actually really weird um well and even when you just did you know the incline movement you stopped here you didn't go higher yeah yeah in yeah, other yeah. words you know when once you go past the origin that muscle can't help you if you're if you're starting low even if you're on an incline bench if you're starting low and you go to the origin and you stop great but that's not what an incline press does an incline press goes past the clavicle yeah, yeah, it, it's actually, um, 
So, so that, that was actually something that I started thinking about a bit, a bit more deeply. Um, cause I, I guess we just all have that tendency that, um, we get a, a decent understanding of how muscles work, what they do. And then we just don't think about them any further. And when I dug into your work, I, um, I started thinking about it a, a bit more and it was actually a very nice revelation that I had this cable stack at home, but it's not very wide. So I was upset that, man, I cannot really do a, a proper cable fly because I cannot like bring it in all the way here. There is like no big tension anymore it's here. It's not behind you enough. It's more to the side, the resistance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. But, then, but then I realized that actually, so if I'm just like bringing, bringing my arms in here, until I'm actually doing it from my pecs, then I actually don't need it to be super wide out. Or so. you can do one arm at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know I, my greatest hope is what you just said, which is that it gets people thinking, right? It gets people realizing that our body is basically a machine of pulleys. And that, you know, if you start doing what you just did, which is, oh, I get it. So if I want to target my clavicular pectorals, and they're, and they're going in this direction, then I need to move toward the origin. But that's a lot different than doing this. So yeah. that's, you know, at least get the, look, when I started realizing these things and that light bulb is going off in my head and I'm going, holy crap, this is amazing, right? You realize that even though you know it logically, you still have some emotional attachment to exercises that violate that rule, Yeah. right? And you, and... So even in my case, it took me a while where I said, okay, well, I'm going to do T-bar row, even though logically it doesn't make sense knowing what I know now, but I'm also going to do scapular retraction. And then little by little, I start doing more sets of that and fewer sets of that. And pretty soon I go, there's just no reason to do that T-bar row anymore. I mean, this is way, way better. Yeah. Yeah. Th there's definitely, um, so actually, so, so then, then let's talk about this. So I think that, um, or the way I'm thinking about these compound lifts, or at least some of them that, that we tend to have this emotional attachment to is, and I acknowledge that, that you always say that, like, look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do these exercises. Just, just know that if your goal is to stimulate these muscles optimally and to make them as big, as efficiently as possible, then probably these other lifts are going to be better. Um, so I think that there might be another reason to include those besides just them feeling good or, or liking them, even if you just want to get big. And, th and that is mainly the, um, the practicalities of the weight room. So like one really frustrating thing about training for muscle hypertrophy is that it's really just, um, a waiting game. And it's also something that is very hard to measure and track in the short term. Cause I mean, really, how are we going to, to measure muscle growth right. it's mainly a thing of like doing something that you think is, is is logically going to work the best and then sort of just hoping that it's going to work well so so with that it's it's really nice to have something that you can accurately measure and keep track of week to week and that's where some of these compound lifts like a leg press or a squat can really shine because like you can actually expect realistically to be able to put i don't know like five pounds to the bar every week uh, whereas with something like um, a CC squat, which which I would agree, like movement for movement is is going to be better for the quads. And I think uh, like most people that understand biomechanics well would not contest that. 
but simply for these practicalities, it might still be worthwhile to have at least one, like, I guess, like heavy hitter like that uh, for a muscle group in your routine. So, so, so what do you think about that thought process? Well, um, let's, let's start off first with the idea that when you're working a compound movement, you've got participating muscles. Yeah. And the participating muscles are having their unique experience, right? So if you compare that unique experience of that muscle in a compound exercise, and then you compare that to that unique experience of that same muscle doing something that's an isolation exercise. Um, as I say in my book, maximum effort is undeniably maximum effort. If you're doing an isolated tricep exercise and you're pushing as hard and heavy as you can for, let's say, dumbbell skull crushers for a set of four reps or six reps, it's undeniable that you're working as hard as, the, as that tricep can possibly work. So the idea that that somehow breaks the rules, that somehow if I use a compound exercise, then my tricep can actually work harder than it can actually work. In other words, if you're, if you're able to lift five pounds heavier in a particular lift, can you really say that your tricep was able to work better, harder here than it could in a, in a, in a skull crusher? If it's working, oh, no. at, ma no, if it's no. working at maximum, it's working in maximum, right? So, so the first part of this would be to say, well, is the five pound increase that you're seeing proof? that each muscle is working better, harder, more? Probably not. That's number one. Number two is, um, is there such a thing as getting stronger and not bigger? Absolutely. It happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was teasing my, my Martin Drake, the, uh, who is the head of the AAU, powerlifting and bodybuilding. He's got hundreds of world records. It's shocking, actually. If you saw him walking down the street, you'd never think it. You'd never think it. He's, he has squatted and deadlifted and bench pressed more than most people could ever even dream of. Mm. And he, he's not a big muscular guy. And yeah. you can look at big muscular guys who can bench press, deadlift, squat a lot less than Martin Drake. Yeah, no. And, and so I, I actually don't disagree with any of that. Um, and so for one, absolutely, you, you can get stronger without getting bigger. And in fact, like most of the strength that you will gain from an exercise, most of that is going to be neurological adaptations, you getting right. better at the lift, finding little quirks to, I, I don't know, just make the, the, the movement pattern like more, more efficient, the, you, yeah. your muscles actually don't have to work as hard. But over the long term, once you milked out most of those neurolog neurological adaptations, at least we're going to be hoping that some part of it is actually going to be more morphology. So the muscle is getting bigger. So it's, it's, and it's still not a guarantee, not, not by any means, but, but at least an indication. And, and I also agree that um, if I'm adding five pounds to the bar with the back squat, yeah, probably my quads are, are still not working better per se than they would on a CC squat. Uh, and actually I could be just, getting bigger in my glutes and not even in my quads so that that could also be a possibility but at, at least it's, it's like some indication whereas like and and maybe a cc squat is not the best example because that you could actually load fairly well but if i'm thinking about say like an overhead press and a lateral raise like i mean with a cable lateral raise like at a certain point like the weight is just not going anywhere like you you will be lucky if you can add another rep 
per month or something but, like but, that. But, but here, and I hear what you're saying, getting back to your original question, which is your need to track something, your need to measure something. Yeah. The, the first thing I would say is, 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 is that maybe you don't need that need. Maybe you don't need to measure something. In other words, maybe you're just pacifying yourself. Maybe you're just trying to give yourself some, some indication that you're moving forward, but it's a, it's a false indicator. If you're getting five pounds more on the bar and, and you logically know that your muscle isn't getting bigger, then, then aren't you being misled a little bit? It's almost like standing in front of the mirror that makes you look bigger, but you're not actually bigger. Um, what, what I would say is, look, there's nothing wrong with a plateau. And by a plateau, I don't necessarily mean that, that what I mean is that you cannot possibly keep growing, growing, growing every week endlessly, right? That, that you can't get a tan endlessly, right? You can go lay out in the sun every day for an hour. And at some point your skin says, I can't get any darker. Mm -hmm. I'm not designed to get any darker, right? So now you could say, I'm going to go an hour and a half every day. All right. Well, now you've increased the intensity. You might get a little darker, right? So when I do my, my workouts, you know, there is, you're always pushing the limits, the capacity limits, right? So if you're doing 10 sets for side deltoid and you have something that's coming up and you need to be better for it, then go 12 sets for a while, then 14 sets for a while, then 16 sets for a while, then 18 sets for a while until you can't increase the volume anymore. Right. Then when that gets to the point, then you maybe take, you know, a week off, then start at 10 sets again and build back up again. And you can, you can nudge the muscle growth like that. But, but when I, when I'm doing side deltas and, and my side deltas are working as hard as they possibly can for the six or eight reps that I'm, that I'm lifting, I face the reality that that is life. That is a muscle's capacity. It's talking to you. It's telling you this is, I'm working as hard as I can. And if I'm not growing, it's because I, I can't grow more at this particular stage, given this particular set, set, particular set of circumstances. You know, now, if you want to add some testosterone, okay, now you've changed the circumstances, <laughs> right? If you want to, you know, increase your, your calories, maybe you're, you've been trying to keep your body fat down so you're not eating enough calories. Okay, now maybe you've changed the circumstances again. But, you know, it is, it is a fact that you, you can't grow forever and you can't grow at the same rate forever. You will grow more in the early stages and less in the later stages. Um, and that's, that's life. That's the way it is. Trying to change the exercise to an exercise that is less direct, logically speaking, doesn't mean that muscle is getting any more work than when it was working at maximum capacity in isolation. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like I, I think a big, a big takeaway from that is that unfortunately a lot of the, a lot of the decisions that we end up making in the gym is actually just, uh, it, it's just down to the limitation of the equipment that we have. So like we wouldn't even have to have this discussion if the, the weight increments on cable stacks were going up by, I don't know, like 50 grams or something right. like that. Right. Th then, yeah, then too big of a jump sometimes. Yeah. And, and, I, and you can add little tiny weights or things like that. But, you know, yeah, that's a problem. The other thing I was going to say, too, and related but not really, is like, like I have clients that are seniors and I don't have them doing the Brick 20. 
I have my 92 year old client doing an elastic band rowing exercise. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get him to do a one arm row, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to get him to now. We do our side laterals on the ground. You know, when we do our side raises for the rear deltoid, you know, and he, he does the backhand, mm-hmm. he has the problem that most people have, which is that rear deltoid doesn't want to go straight. It kind of wants to go down. Mm. Right. So he does, he does that because, because that's what the shoulder joint kind of wants to do. And that's kind of what the rear deltoid wants to do, but I, we don't have cables. And so, and it's, and it's too complex and he's not trying to get maximum results. So for all of these reasons, you make do with what you have available to you, either equipment wise or client wise. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a few other muscle groups that, uh, I, I wanted to to pick your brain on a bit. So one one is the triceps. Um, so you you do mention in your book, and also you mentioned in a couple of podcasts that overhead work is not not really needed. Um, and your retort to the whole idea that you need overhead work to work the long head of the triceps more is that uh, yes, you're going to stretch it out more, but there is no need to pre-stretch. The, uh, a muscle group to work it maximally yeah. is is that sort of the same principle as what you were saying with the last that there is no need to go for like 100 range of motion uh especially so if it compromises the the load that you can use and or causes uh joint discomfort oh right so, so sort of sort of re- to reiterate that you know um in fact i just saw somebody post earlier that if you don't do overhead tricep extensions, the long head of your tricep won't be activated. <laughs> that literally the old, the overhead tricep is the only exercise that activates the. Well, you know, if you just look at an anatomy chart, you can see that the three heads of the tricep connect to the one single tendon and they pull on the electron process of the forearm. You can't disengage the long head. Yeah. It's going to participate along with the other two because they're, they're all three pulling on the same tendon. Right. So it's impossible. Yes, it's true that the long head is the only one that stretches when you put it over your arm, over your head. The other two do do not cross the shoulder joint. So they do not benefit in a stretch from putting your arm overhead, but they all three participate. So um, the other thing that I find funny is if you watch people doing overhead tricep work in the gym, you'll notice that most people don't even go all the way down. Oh, yeah. yeah. In other words, they're not even getting the stretch that they could be getting. Yeah. Which of course defeats the purpose. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how critically important is that pre-stretch to muscle growth? And in order to answer that, we would have to ask ourselves, well, do we pre-stretch on everything? Do we, do we, do, do we start our bicep curls with our arm behind us? Do we bottom out on chest? You know, and yet you can see people getting magnificent results, uh, uh, literally avoiding the first, 10 degrees of the range of motion, the the maximum stretch part of the range of motion of most exercises. And it's perfectly okay. My my estimation is that 80%, certainly no less than 70% of the range of motion is valuable in the first, somewhere in the first third, first half of the range of motion is the most important, the most valuable, the part that needs to be most loaded, the the part that needs to be most not missed Mm-hmm. But getting loading the early 10% of it is not critically important. So, um, so then, so then you say, okay, so then if overhead isn't necessary, how about if I bring my arm straight in front of me? 
as opposed to like this. And I say, well, let me ask you a question. When you're doing this, can you feel your tricep contracting the same way you can when you No, you can contract it better here. So kind of a good rule of thumb is to seek muscle contraction at the end of all of you know leg extension you seek to feel that muscle contract at the conclusion of the range of motion and you can do that far better with your arms down at your side next question is how does your shoulder feel when you do this when you do this how does your elbow feel well i find that my shoulders and my elbows feel best when my arms are relatively low not necessarily right alongside my body but close to my torso I feel that my, my elbows are the most comfortable. My shoulders are the most comfortable. And I get that con tricep contraction that, I, that I'm trying to find, that I'm trying to seek. Okay, next question is, how long have you done that? And have you noticed a, uh, any kind of loss of your long head of your tricep? No. The long head of my tricep is every good, every bit as good as, it, as it's ever been. I'm 61 years old. And all I do is now, Decline dumbbell triceps and modified cable pushdowns. Yeah. Um, so, so there's no loss and there's nothing but gain. Yeah, I mean, when, when I read read that, um, I actually got hopeful because uh, overhead uh, tricep work, uh, my elbows just don't love it. Um, although I actually noticed that um, it might not actually be the overhead component, but more so just this peak elbow flexion. So if I don't go all the way down here, but stop somewhere like here, then actually it's quite fine. Um, so, so would, would you think, so if, if I was to turn to you for advice on like, Hey, so this bothers my elbows, what should I do? Would you say that actually like this last bit is not that critically important. So like th yes. this much range of motion is already. I, I would say that's fine. And I would also say, I'm not telling you to not do overhead triceps. Mm-hmm. What I'm telling you is that there is no advantage mm -hmm. to doing overhead tricep. So you can get great triceps doing overhead tricep works, you know, but you're, you're still getting perpendicular loading on that forearm, which is what we talked about earlier. Yeah. Right? I just don't think that there's any advantage whatsoever. And I certainly, as I said, I haven't done overhead tricep exercise for at least 10 years, probably closer to 20. Um, and I have not lost any tricep and that's despite the age yeah and before that so uh that, that's what you use to maintain most of your uh, tricep size uh before that were you doing a lot of because uh, that's always well, the argument like okay so this is what you did to maintain which we all know is easier but to to build the physique that you have uh where well, you also when i when i was when i was in my 20s when i was competing for mr california and northwestern america mr america um, I didn't emphasize overhead tricep exercises. I did maybe one, maybe a flat, maybe a decline, maybe a cable, you know, the, the, the traditional stuff that all bodybuilders did. But, but, you know, in my earlier years, even in my late twenties, early, my late teens, early twenties, I was already finding that I preferred some exercises and I disliked, disliked others. And, and, and little by little, I was formulating the rationale because that's kind of how my brain works. As I, if I say I don't like something, I say, why don't I like it? Mm -hmm. is, it is it an emotional dislike or is it a logical dislike? And what is it about it mechanically that would make it different and therefore less likable or less healthy, less viable? 
then then elbows. So little by little, I started formulating these these ideas. But but look, you know, I I competed for forty three years, right? So wow, okay, you, I didn't you, didn't actually you, know that. Yeah, I won Mr. Universe the last time at the age of fifty nine. Oh, okay. And 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 so. I was, I was pushing the limits as much as I could possibly push them. Um, but you can't keep growing forever and ever and ever. And, oh, yeah. you know, I'm not against steroids, but I am against being unre unreasonable in, in, in their use. Right. So mm -hmm. maybe somebody could say, well, if you would have taken more juice, you could have gotten bigger. It's like, yeah, I suppose so. But you know, I want to live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to yeah. be, be saying, I mean, so, um, you can't, you can't say that the reason why my triceps weren't bigger in my fifties than they were in my twenties is because I stopped doing overhead tricep extensions. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, it, out of curiosity. So, um, when you were in your, in your twenties and, and whatever later on, so as you built up the physique that, that we can see on the pictures on when you're on stage, you, were you always more of a proponent of, um, like these sorts of volumes, like um, eight to 12 sets, like that, that sort of range, or were you doing much higher volumes uh, during those times? Well, um, I, you know, we experiment, you know, and, and, and there were times when I would do, you know, 15 sets, 18 sets, 20 sets, but you could see that they weren't really producing more results than, and, and by the way, if you're doing 20 sets, four, four exercises, five sets each. Yeah. And you realize that, you know, two or three of those exercises are less than optimal. Mm -hmm. You realize that if you just do more of the optimal one, you don't need to do to as many total sets, you know, so you yeah. could see the result. I mean, I could see in the mirror that I was getting as good a result or better doing fewer sets of a better exercise than more sets of this combination. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely one thing that um, people just don't consider that when we when you look at these studies on okay, so that this this much volume seems to, to produce the best results. I mean, there there are so many things that that will make each rep and thereby each set just more effective. So yeah, I mean, maybe with some like partial range of motion, out of box squats, and then having like I don't know. 60 seconds of rest in between sets of squats with that kind of a setup. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, 30 sets produce the best results, but if you're doing exercises with much better range of motion, the intensity of effort is there. I mean, it, it must, it must be modifying the, the actual amount of volume that, that you need to, to grow the best. So you so, can. So, so, so here's the thing. Now, now you're talking about a subject that is, that has a lot of gray area. Mm -hmm. that has a lot of moving parts, a lot of variables, and it makes it very difficult to literally pinpoint. And that is, I just tell my training partner the other day, you know, you can manipulate a set in such a way as to allow you to do more volume. Mm -hmm. And you can also manipulate the rest time in between the sets. Yeah. So if you do a little bit more intensity per set and a little bit, less time rest between sets you get that feeling that we think we want which is total muscle fatigue mm -hmm. with fewer total sets yeah so you think oh time saving 
However, there is some research that suggests that if you take longer rest between sets, like two and three minutes between sets, and if you avoid going to failure, mm -hmm. instead of going to 100% on each set, you go to 90% and you leave a little in the tank, so to speak, but you do more total sets, that that ends up giving you more muscle growth. And then comes the other equation, which is frequency. How frequently are you going to work that muscle group, right? So now there's some research that says that if you do fewer sets per workout, but you do them more often, you'll get as good or more muscle growth. So as a comparison, I'm doing, let's say, 10 sets of chest once every five days, once every six days. And if I do five sets of chest once every three days, you're saying I'm going to get better muscle growth. Well, how do I do five sets and feel satisfied? <laughs> how do yeah, I yeah. get, I mean, I would have to take each of those sets to failure and do very short rests. And then that flies in the face of this research that says, if I take a longer rest and, and stay. So I, I don't know if that's a knowable thing. I don't know, because even the studies that are done may have a bias between the people that are doing this. I, I don't know, but I know uh, that probably like you, we seek a certain satisfaction at the end of a certain body part workout. We want to feel that that muscle has been thoroughly worked. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and that takes a certain amount of time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's definitely some things might be good for the muscle, but, but not for the soul. <laughs> and by the way, this is, this is physiology, mm -hmm. right? That's why I, I throw my hands up when it comes to things like this. And I turn it over to Chris Beardsley and I turn it over to Brad Schoenfeld and maybe even to Mike Israel, where I say, what does the research tell us about this particular physiological aspect of yeah. muscle growth? I am a biomechanics. I tell you angles, levers, you know, I, I, I find that's much, much more quantifiable. In fact, I want to show, I want to show you this. You might be fascinated by this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I know you're a little... Yeah, I, I, I like quantifying things, and you can do that very well when it comes to mechanics. You can't do that very well when it comes to physiology. So what I have here is, um, let me do this. Okay, so I think your viewers might enjoy seeing this. So what I have here is, is a scale. You can see that they're not straight arms, right? They're both, they're angled a little... And they're both six inches long. Sorry, I'm not using centimeters, but they're both six inches long. And they're both empty baskets. So now I'm going to put one of these weights into each of the baskets. And of course, it'll stay the same. So what we're saying here is that one weight with a six-inch lever at this angle, which, by the way, essentially means this moment arm right here this is equivalent to that weight six inch lever same moment arm if i add another weight to this side now what we're saying is two weights with a six inch lever at this angle which basically means this moment arm is equivalent to one weight six inch lever bigger moment arm Bigger moment arm magnifies more. Shorter moment arm magnifies less. I'm going to take a third one. I'm going to put it in the basket. 
So now we have three weights at this angle equals one eight at that one weight at that angle. What I'm indirectly saying is this is the angle of the lower leg during a barbell squat. Mm -hmm. This is the angle of a lower leg during a sissy squat. You need three times as much weight with a lower leg at this angle to load the quadricep with the same amount of load that one weight at, at, a, at, a, at a lower leg at that angle. So this is not, I'm not having to do mathematics here. This isn't trigonometry. This is just showing the effect of the moment arm on the magnification of the weight you're using. And so it's sort of foolish to load your spine with three times more weight than you would need to, to compensate for the inadequate lower leg angle lever that you're using during a barbell squat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like the, the, the squatting example, um, I mean, so definitely the, the lower back injury risk is definitely higher. Um, if however, we look at something like a, like a hack squat where, or, or let's say a leg press, let's say one of the better ones, not the ones where you're like folded over like a harmonica from the get go. So, um, like, let's say in the, in those cases, we can actually take the whole back issue out of the picture. So yes, you will have to use higher loads. Uh, but wh why, so why, why would that be actually problematic? Um, if, if there is no higher injury risk for the, for the back, I guess for the knees, it would not be any more risky. Um, is it just a matter of, well, why would you do it? You just have to load up more weight plates and it's annoying, or would, would there still be issues with that in, in your view? This is a very good question. And, and, and in fact, the, the, well, the, the leg press is difficult because you're so piped, right? Your knees come into your chest. You're, you have, you know, a limited range of motion, right? When you straighten your legs, depending on how much flexibility you have, when you straighten your legs, you'll feel some hamstring stretch, right? And the hamstring stretch yeah. is going to sort of compromise the quadriceps. But the hack squat machine is actually very good. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens with the hack squat machine is very interesting. Yes, your lower back is out of the equation. You're leaning back against the pad. Great. You got, you know, a little bit of spinal compression because the pads are pushing up. Not excessive. Fine. Right. What's actually happening with the hack squat is that um, because your back is here and your feet are here, you're actually pushing slightly forward, whether you know it or not. Yeah. So if you put oil on that foot plate, your feet would slide out forward. That's proof that you're actually pushing forward, not straight down. That's called ground reaction force. Mm -hmm. You're actually pushing against a nib movable brace, which is the traction of your shoes. And that forward push is basically pushing back in the opposite direction, which is creating a more perpendicular angle to your lower leg than occurs during a barbell squat. That's why you feel a hack squat machine more in the quads than you do a barbell squat. Yeah. Now, if you were to move your feet farther back so that your lower leg gets more horizontal, which of course means that your heels are going to come up mm -hmm. and you can't use as much weight, yeah. then you're getting, you're getting more quad load, more quad percentage of load. And that's perfectly fine. I do not discourage people from doing a hack squat machine. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah, I actually, um, I actually saw, I think it was Tom Platt's, uh, some sort of a, a demonstration of the hack squat. And I, I think it was like the camera angle was weird, but if I saw it correctly, he actually allowed his heels to come up at the end and he was sort of finishing the movement in a kind of CC squatty 
uh, fashion. I, I don't know if it's perfectly if, fine as long as it's comfortable for your feet and heels and everything. That's fine. Nothing yeah. wrong with it at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, the sissy squat machine is a little bit like the sissy squat bench. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right. The hack squat machine is a yeah. little like the sissy squat bench in the sense that if you understand where the forces are being applied, you understand why it's good. Mm-hmm. But if you don't understand where the forces apply, you might assume that you're dealing with the same direction of resistance as a regular squat. And you're not, Yeah, you're not dealing with a straight down bird. In fact, I, I, I did a demonstration once where I took, I actually created a sissy squat bench out of balsa wood. And then I created a balsa wood man in a standing position and in the descended position. And when I put him in the standing position and I held it up like this and I dropped him, he fell straight down because the direction of resistance is vertical. But when I took the man that I built in his, and I put it in there and I, I just let go of him, he was sitting there on his own. Mm. Why? Because now the direction of resistance isn't pulling down. It's, it's a rotational direction of resistance now. And he's pushing forward against his ankle, against that brace around the pivot created above at the top of his tibia. So now you have this direction of resistance. And even though it looks like a regular squat, it is essentially a leg extension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and I guess like a, a pendulum squat machine would be, I guess it could be actually even better because like it, with that one, you're actually sort of pushing your feet forward, like your shin forward. It actually looks like a leg extension machine more so. Well, than a- we're about to do an, ex- an analysis on that. And what I would do is I would take uh, a compass and I would put it on the pivot of the machine and then I would draw the trajectory of the force. And, and then you would draw that trajectory right through the femur and through the tibia, and you can pinpoint where it's more or less perpendicular and determine how much glute, how much quad. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that, that would be super interesting. Um, so I guess just one last muscle group that I want to quickly touch on is, uh, is hamstrings. So I, first of all, do you think, do you think there is any, reason to include hip hinges in your program to to train the hamstrings or it's it's you mean, you, you mean like a deadlift uh well so so like or a the, romanian deadlift reverse? romanian deadlift stiff leg deadlift um, good morning something like that yeah well the problem is that the glute is much stronger than the erector spinae so yeah. if you're going to to maximally challenge the glute and you're relying on your torso and the weight holding you're holding in your arms then at some point the erector spine, it can't hold as much load as your glutes and your spine will start to fold. And then you start to risk uh, herniation. So that's why if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to work the hamstrings, I would emphasize, emphasize knee flexion rather yeah. than hip extension. In fact, you know, whenever you're doing hip extension, this is the mistake people make is they say, I feel a stretch. When I yeah. do hip extension and I go, yes, but, but do you feel hamstring contraction when you get to the top? Not as much as I would if my knee was bent, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's what a muscle needs for growth is muscle contraction. And the analysis, the comparison you can make is, okay, so let's just say that the bicep of your arm is your hamstring, right? And the front deltoid is the glute, right? Would I think of, of doing this to work my hamstring? <sighs> Do I think I can get a good bicep workout doing this without bending my elbow? No, you know that even though the hamstring stretches when you do 
the elongated part of the hip extension, you don't actually ever get to a point where you're getting hamstring contraction. And, yeah. and the load has to be more on the glutes and on the adductors because they're in a position of more leverage than the hamstring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm coming to just hate hinges. Um, just in the recent, um, I don't know, like one or two months, I had like six independent case studies, including actually mine, <laughs> of, of people just screwing up their backs with not even super heavy weights on Romanian deadlifts and stuff. So like, uh, if I'm going to suggest it to someone, it's going to be with like very controlled tempo, like, um, pausing, just really making sure that you're not messing anything up. Like, I, I think the only argument I could make for them, uh, if, is if someone doesn't have a good seated black curl machine, and then, and then it might actually be difficult to get like any decent amount of tension on the hamstrings in at longer muscle lengths. So, so in that case, there, there could be a benefit to them. Um, but if someone has a good seated leg curl machine, then I just honestly don't really see, see the reason to include them. Well, we do, we, we do cable leg curls. We, we, we built, we made a seat that is a little higher than a standard bench. It's about six inches, eight inches higher than a standard bench. Mm -hmm. And then we connect an ankle strap with a D ring and we connect it to the cable. And then you can, because the bench is higher, the heel can come down and clear the bench. You don't hit the floor. Right. In fact, I just was looking at a video I made earlier where you can, you know, you can't work it as heavy as you could on a seated electro machine. Yeah. But it's a whole lot better, a whole lot better than doing any kind of hinge exercise for the hamstring. Yeah, I, I actually, so I, I did that as well. Uh, the cable leg curl out of curiosity, do you have the cable come from, from like top to down or you yeah, use it's, the lower it's, a, it's about, it's about, I would say the height of my head. Uh-huh. The pulley is about the height of my head. When my leg is horizontal, that means the cable is pulling up from my leg right. in the extended position. So to some degree, that's what's holding my leg up, right? Yeah. And it's also creating a perpendicular resistance to my lower leg. Mm -hmm. So then as I start to bend the leg, by the time I finish the contraction, the cable and my lower leg are almost parallel to each other, but not quite. Mm -hmm. So I have a diminished resistance at the point of contraction, which is consistent with the strength curve of the muscle. You want it to diminish a little bit and about halfway through the range of motion, it finds that perpendicular angle to the cable. So I'm getting the most resistance halfway through the range of motion, which is good because that's when I'm, my hamstrings is at mechanical advantage. And then when I get to the top, I get a little, little diminished resistance, but still enough to give me the resistance I need for the full range of motion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No, that, 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 that makes sense. Yeah. I, I tend to suggest that, um, actually to people who have home gyms and, and have a cable stack, um, and it's definitely better than nothing. You can uh, also do a cable leg extension, Yeah. but that the problem with that, well, you need an elevated bench like we have, but the problem with that is it requires a training partner to connect you yeah. back there underneath the yeah. bench. Cause you can't, it's easy to connect yourself to a single leg, leg curl. Yeah, but it's not easy to connect yourself to a seated leg extension if you're in the seat already. Yeah, I I, I tried everything with the seat, the cable leg extension. I even tried; uh, it didn't work out that well. But I tried like lying back on my back and then sort of like pulling my knee up oh, yeah. so that it's stable. But the problem with that, then, then you'd really have to pull off yeah, your thighs, it's gonna pull, and then, it's going to pull your femur down. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I guess like the 
it's it's not not even optimal because like ideally you would be leaning back like you would do on a leg extension machine. Yeah, and well, um, also in the in the quadricep requires more weight than the hamstring does, so you're talking about loading a lot of weight on that cable yeah. on your ankle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, Doug. So uh, I I could keep going on for like a whole bunch more muscle groups, but um, we'll, we'll just have to do another one. This is this is good stuff for viewers because it uh, it allows them to see logical conversation right rather than, yeah. than than dogmatic conversation we can analyze something and say well here's the pro but here's the con and if you do too much of this and you lose a little bit of that and that's kind of how this thing works is you know is deciding on what is the best balance of things yeah yeah, yeah. no it's um i i think i think these this this was really useful and and actually, I would I would personally love to see um, like a roundtable discussion between you and Mike Israel, for example, because um, because it's always different when you address something to another person in a solo video. Uh, I guess the other person is not there to just interject and say like, "Hey, by the way, I never meant that. I never said that. That maybe maybe you misunderstood what I meant." Um, so then, it, it it just comes across as less. Um, I don't know, offensive or maybe just a piss taking at times. Well, uh, you know, I, the problem that I, that, that, that could occur with, with a round table, um, it's, it works fine. If you have guests that are humble, that you have guests that listen and, and, and think about what's being said and are, and are willing to concede if something that you're saying makes sense. Yeah, but sometimes, oftentimes, I'm not going to mention names, but sometimes the guest must be correct. Mm. Cannot afford to concede in his mind, and they will. If they're a fast talker, <laughs> if they're articulate and can you know, um, and and can talk around a subject then 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 the other person feels sort of bullied and overrun i have no problem addressing if somebody says something i have no problem in a calm environment like this saying this is the way i see this thing yeah but when i feel that i'm being attacked then i feel like this is not the environment to have a constructive conversation yeah with, with the fast talking and the articulate person, are you referring to some roundtables that you have seen on podcasts um, where, where you had that thought? <laughs> not, not, not necessarily. And it, by the way, it, it also happens in other, on other subjects. Mm -hmm. oh, you yeah. know, if you, if you have a person who's, who's a good debater, does the, even if he's got the facts wrong, even if, even if he's not correct. I mean, I, I've seen people invent statistics I've seen people say, oh, there was a study that was done. It's like, I've never seen that study. I, I could look it up and not find it. Yeah. But at the time, you don't know what he's referring to. And, but, but the thing about studies, too, is like if somebody says, you know, we did this EMG study and we found that you can work the long end of the muscle, the, the distal end of the muscle more during this phase of the range of motion and the, this part of the range of motion. Okay, I don't know what study you're talking about, but that just breaks the logic rule. Mm. It just breaks the logic rule. It's a rope. It's a rope. I mean, anatomical function happens. Joint movement happens because the rope is pulling on that other end. 
Yeah. It doesn't logically make sense that one end of this rope could somehow produce or need to produce more force. It's just, it's just contracting. It's pulling the two ends together. In fact, it doesn't even know which end is moving toward which end. Yeah. As you well know, a lot of people, I mean, that, it's quite wild that it even happens in a debate, but uh, a lot of people will, I mean, it's much easier to put a reference in a book, for example, which doesn't even support what the person is saying that that happens all the time because they know that people will never check those references. Like yeah. uh, it's, it's just a uh, uh, virtual signaling. Like you see, I put the references there. So, you know, I'm smart. I look at yeah. studies, but um, yeah, but any, anyway, um, uh, it would be awesome to have you back at some point and, uh, and, and continue this. And once again, Doug, I really, so I, there, there might be people who disagree with, with some of the things that you're saying, or, or maybe some things they just cannot accept, or maybe they just don't like you, whatever. Uh, I, I would still say that um, getting your book, buying it is, is highly recommended to anyone who is serious about lifting even if you disagree with some stuff or you don't like some stuff in it, it will make you think. And I think you will have a much better understanding of, of proper exercise selection. So, you know, I, I, you know this because you have my book. Uh, the viewers don't know my book is endorsed by 10 PhDs and three orthopedic surgeons. And these are not, these are professional people. These are professors, physics, neurology, um, um, biomedical engineering, uh, paleoanthropology. These are people that have made statements saying that the things I say in my book are sensible. We even had, you know, engineers, uh, you know, talk about the physics part of it. Yes, that's sensible. Um, you know, we had a psychologist and a sociologist talk about how it is that we've come to misguided beliefs because of certain things that, that our society has always respected, meaning the exhibition of power the exhibition of strength. So we've leaned in the direction of favoring compound exercises, not so much because we did the math and we figured out that they were mechanically good for each participating muscle, but because we wanted to believe that those exercises were good. You go to, when I went to ACSM to get certified, uh, you know, they didn't even mention biomechanics. Mm. They talked about metabolic equations. Well, you know, what's the, what's the point you, you most trainers deal with resistance exercise. How can you skip physics? How can you skip mechanics? You know, how can you skip anatomy? Yeah. And yet you're going to have these trainers go out there and deal with anatomical motion. You know, metabolic equations is nonsense. It's like, it basically says you, if you weigh this many pounds and you step up and down a step that is this high at this particular rate, you will absolutely burn this many numbers of kilocalories. And therefore you could predict how much body fat this person. Will. No, it never, that's that gray area. You know, it is useless to learn metabolic equations and then skip anatomy and mechanics. It just doesn't make sense that this is the world we live in. Yeah, no, no I, I agree. Um, yeah. It, it to, like I said in the beginning, it's, it's crazy to me how, how many people that are, are meant to be experts or even just people who care a lot about this stuff, uh, just over overlook this, um, this aspect of fitness, uh, yeah. is, it's quite crazy. I agree. Um, 
Anyway, thank you so much. Anyway, yeah, thank thank you so much. I'm really honored that you took the time. So please just let people know uh, where they can find your book, um, social media, anything that you'd like to mention. All right. Well, it's uh, my book is available on Amazon in most countries, not all countries. Um, if it's not available in the Amazon in the country where you're at, you can go to my website, dougbrignoli.com. We do ship overseas, um, but uh, obviously it's it's another expense right? More so than if you had an Amazon near you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and sometimes it takes a while. And sometimes depending on the country, we sent the book to Australia. And I guess they're the because USPS, which is United States Postal Service, takes it to your country and then hands it to your postal service. If the country, if your country's postal service is not reliable, that could be a problem. So you could send it to UPS or FedEx, but it's three times more money. But anyway, if you want to get it, you can get it through my website. You can also get a digital copy of it um, from uh, healthylearning.com, which is the, mm-hmm. the, the publisher. So that's, that'll come to you right away, which is nice and no shipping charges. Um, and then you can check out Smart Training 365 for our videos and our trainer certification. And uh, that's about it.